So today I'm looking at the question of whether immigration is a social good. And the reason I, I wanted to look at this question today is, well, well for two reasons, really. It, it was inspired by an interview with uh, Poppy Coburn on the New Culture Forum channel um, a few days ago with, uh, with Peter Whittle. And um, she was saying that immigration was justified by we've we've seen record levels of immigration uh, lately, and uh, since Brexit, it actually seems to increase. And it seems the political class have a particular vision for for immigration, which is not shared by the majority of the country. And the reason that it is justified is for two reasons. Firstly, because it is seen as an economic benefit that migration is seen as an economic thing. Um, and that, by and large, I think is goes unchallenged um, because the politicians never really have to justify it. Um, but secondly, they say, because immigration is a social good. And I think that is the reason why uh, it, it goes unchallenged, because it is just seen by the political class or by many of the political class as a social good. And therefore, there is no need to actually justify the economic um, benefits or, or anything like that. Um, that actually it, it is just seen, I suppose, as a good thing, as a virtuous thing. And therefore, we need to support it no matter no matter what. And that's what I wanted to look at in this podcast, which is, is immigration that kind of social good, which we can um, safely, you know, just, just leave as is, because it's just a good thing to do. Uh, well, typically... And one of the reasons that I particularly wanted to look at this is because the church has often not really said very much about this at all. Um, so let me just quote to you what Justin Welby said from 2014. At the heart of Christian teaching about the human being is all human beings are of absolutely equal and infinite value. And the language we use must reflect the value of the human being and not treat immigration as just a deep menace that is somehow going to overwhelm a country that has coped with many waves of immigration and has usually done so with enormous success. And it is part of the strength and brilliance of this country that we are so good at this, and I would hate to see us lose that tradition. That's what Justin Welby said, Archbishop of Canterbury, back in 2014, saying that uh, although he believed that there were uh, concerns about integration, he says it's uh, people are starting to see immigration as a deep menace to society. Um, and those were his words. So this is the way that the church has tended to view immigration, that we just need to welcome people with open arms uh, regardless and, you know, there's no kind of thought uh, to that at all. There's no real thought to integration or speaking about, you know, the, the challenges of how we might do that. But just that it's a good thing and we just need to do it. And, you're, you know, you're basically, you're immoral if, if you don't get with the programme. Um, so... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of characterising a little bit here, but I, I think that is what um, the, the gist of what people think church leaders are, are saying about immigration anyway. Um, now, let me just before we get into this, let me give a little bit of personal background, because I think this is this is um, forms part of it, really, which is the first thing is um, my background if you go back far enough, 
is actually I'm I'm an immigrant. Uh, my family are. I'm I'm a descendant of Huguenots. They arrived in Britain. My my ancestors right arrived in Britain sometime in the 1550s, and they were fleeing religious persecution in France. The history of the Huguenots is quite interesting, by the way, if you've never looked into it. I, I hadn't read uh, or thought much about it until um, earlier this year. I bought a book about the Huguenots and I started learning some of the history of it all, which is quite interesting. It all comes from the Reformation and from John Calvin. And that um, in France, they had a very different experience to what happened in England, which is why you ended up with Huguenots fleeing to England and to other places. Um, so... Yeah, my my um, ancestors were, you might call them um, asylum seekers, perhaps, or, or refugees. They were fleeing persecution and they, they found refuge here. So that's my family background. Also, in our uh, church recently, we have um, welcomed a um, an Iranian couple who have been sent here as asylum seekers. So they're a Christian couple and they're a lovely couple. They've started coming to our church as um, and they're asylum seekers. And they were actually referred to us. They were in London. And another church said, you know, um, contacted us and said, can you welcome this this family? And, and of course, we were, we were pleased to do that. So that's that's my my personal experience. And I do have some experience living in a variety of areas um, prior to where, where we're living now. This area that I'm in at the moment is uh, predominantly sort of white British, um, quite a, um, a monocultural area. But um, pr- before this, I lived in North London and you know, hugely diverse um, sort of area that, that we came from. So, you know, very different experiences of places that I've lived and, and various different places in between as well. Um, so that's just to say that's what my experience has been. Um, I know that you know lived experience is a big thing, but um, you know that's sort of where I'm I'm coming from and, and what my what I've seen. Um, now there are complexities when you're talking about immigration, as I've already alluded to. The immigration can cover a number of things. It can talk about uh, refugees or asylum seekers. So that is people who've been displaced from their home because of either war or because of um, uh, persecution. Asylum seekers, you know, coming here because they face persecution in their own countries for various reasons, maybe because they're Christian, in fact. Uh, So that's that's different from people coming here uh, due to economic reasons. People thinking, well, I want to move to to the UK because I want better economic prospects. Um, and I mean those two, those three things kind of blur into each other a little bit, um, and particularly you see that I think with some of the um, the the migrant crossings from France, um, it it's not always easy to draw uh, a kind of straight, uh, a kind of a, a wide line between each of those three things. Um, and of course there are added complexities to that. You know, thinking about again the the migrant crossings from France is every single. Um, asylum seeker or refugee genuine in in inverted commas you know was it because they are really fleeing or do they just want better economic prospects or or something like that i mean it's how do you begin to unpick that um so you know there are real complexities here and i appreciate as i started when i started sort of preparing for this this podcast um it just made me realize the complexities of the situation were even more than i thought they were 
But what I want to do today is just to focus on the economic migrants and in particular thinking about mass migration. Now this is a relatively new thing under new labour uh, where the, the numbers of migrants were intentionally, you know, the, the borders were opened and uh, many more people you know, coming into the um, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people are now able to come to the UK because of the, the policies um, which were put in place um, back, back then and, and no political party has really changed that since. Um, so, what are the arguments then about immigration? And in particular, why would anyone disagree with immigration and particularly with mass migration? The first thing that I want to look at is the problem of depopulation. Um, this is the question of whether it is good for countries for uh, lots of young people to leave the country in search of a better life. So just to, to quote you one article um, about Romania. Romania's population declined by 128,900 in 2018 compared to the previous year due to demographic decline and emigration, according to Eurostat data. So this is a known problem in uh, European countries, but I, I suppose other countries too, which is that the countries are actually declining in population. And that is partly due to declining birth rates. But it is also because a lot of younger people are leaving those countries to go and work elsewhere. So let me quote you from the EU website. This is um, an article called How to Tackle Population Decline in Europe's Regions from the 19th of May 21. It says this, sharp declines, especially in Eastern and Southern Europe, due to the combination of intra-EU migration from these areas and low fertility rates. So the, the countries in um, Eastern and Southern Europe have seen quite sharp declines in population. Uh, they say, go on to say, uh, brain drain slash gain. Uh, sending regions are losing high skills and competencies to the advantage of receiving regions as a result of permanent emigration. So that um, countries who uh, are, don't have very many work opportunities, they may produce skilled workers, but then those workers are going over to work in other countries and leaving, so that uh, the skilled workers are not remaining in their home countries in, in certain um, areas. And uh, it goes on to say, Depopulated regions are often low-income rural or post-industrial areas with fewer job opportunities. The exodus of younger skilled workers have further affected ageing, generation renewal and agricultural development. So basically, when a lot of young people leave your country to find uh, more opportunities in other countries, it, it is on the one hand understandable on the other hand, it is not good for that country. It has bad effects upon that country. It seems to me that the most logical and, um, I say logical, but the best solution for everyone is rather than 
you know, uh, encouraging young people to leave their countries to find uh, work elsewhere is actually to improve life in the countries where they are so that they're able to find work and contribute in those countries. And of course, some will want to travel, some will want to go abroad. And that's that's all that's always been the case. And that's fine. But that we you know with the, the, the numbers involved, it's it's much better actually to work on fixing those economic problems and job prospects in the individual countries. That seems to me to be best for every country um, rather than simply saying, well, you can leave and go to another country. So I think this is where mass migration has had a real negative effect. And it's an effect which is very rarely talked about, which is the effect upon those countries where lots of young people have left. Another factor, and this is one which is uh, sometimes talked about, but not as often as it should be, is the problem of cultural change. Now, I think a large part of the problem here is uh, multiculturalism and the idea that at the end of the day, really, many uh, countries, many cultures are basically the same at the root and that people can just kind of rub along well together. They don't have to actually uh, conform to a particular culture. They can have their own culture and just rub along with other people from other cultures and everything will be happy and fine and dandy. And this is the view, it's seemingly, of the elites. So this is what um, uh, Ingrid Lomfors said in 2015. She is, or, or she was, head of the Swedish government for, Forum for Living History. And I believe this was quoted by Douglas Murray in, um, I think, possibly in The Strange Death of Europe. She said, there is no native Swedish culture. She gave a, a speech um, a few years ago, yeah, 2015, about this. There is no native Swedish culture. And that seems to be not just the view of, of her, but of many elites, that really culture in our countries is either there's no native culture or it's pretty insignificant and trivial. And that also seemed to be the view of Justin Trudeau, uh, also in 2015, he gave an interview to the uh, New York Times where he said this. There is no core identity, no mainstream in Canada. There are shared values, openness, respect, compassion, willingness to work hard, to be there for each other, to search for equality and justice. Those qualities are what make us the first post-national state. This is what Justin Trudeau said, and I think what he said there would be shared by many elites around the globe. They want a post-national state. They don't want a nation-state with shared values and shared culture, really. They think that they want a sort of global state where people can just move around however they want, and there isn't really any difference in culture or anything. They are, they are globalists. And um, I think this is quite significant to what's to, to, to the drive behind immigration because I think many of our elites don't think that there is anything fundamentally different between say British culture and culture from um, Poland perhaps or Romania or even from you know Pakistan that they think you know well yeah you can just you know we're all the same really we all want the same things you can just rub shoulders together we'll be a post-national state that you know you just need to be openness respect compassion and so on that's all we need uh, so that's quite a significant driver 
behind immigration, the idea that there isn't really something such as culture. The problem with this view is when you do get a clash or a collision of two different cultures and two different value systems, and we've seen this quite a few times lately, um, we've seen it in the, the grooming gang scandal. Um, so you know that um, throughout uh, the UK, in many towns, then there were grooming gangs operating who were mostly of um, Pakistani Muslim heritage. And they were targeting largely uh, uh, working class white young, uh, young women and grooming them for sexual abuse. And there was an article on Spiked um, earlier this year, the 20th of July, by Hardeep Singh, who was arguing that you know they should not simply be called Asian grooming gangs because this—that's what the the mainstream media were doing. They just papered over this because they couldn't. It, it um, offended their worldview. You know, they couldn't deal with it, so they called them Asian uh, grooming gangs. And Hardeep Singh says, you know, the members of the grooming gangs were not simply Asian. By and large, they were Muslim men of Pakistani heritage. And he goes on to explain why it's, it was, you know, an offen offensive really to just call them Asian as if they could have been, you know, from Thailand or, or from other, other places. Um, you know, it's a, a stupid thing really to call them Asian in that way. It's like saying that the, he says, like saying that the, um, the men who committed atrocities in, in Nazi Germany were European. Well, yes, in one sense, yes, but that's really very misleading and well actually i think it's inaccurate to say that um so uh, so yeah the media have been unable to deal with that and it's because of this clash between you know what's showing up the fact that different cultures are different and have different values uh, smashing against the prevailing view that every culture is basically the same um, you could add to that the riots and uh, violence that we've seen in Leicester, where um, gangs, uh, Muslim gangs and Hindu gangs kind of were, were violent and that the Hindus were targeting the Muslims and so on. It was um, uh, sort of things which were happening in India and in other places which are being imported to the UK. Uh, that's part of the, the problem there. And again, you know, just this this notion that, um, you know, multiculturalism is if you put people of different cultures together, they'll just get along fine is simply untenable. It, it does not work. And that's what we've we've seen. And uh, one more thing that you could add is the way that, um, again, these woke corporations completely um, they completely pay lip service to Western values, but are completely, you know, um, cowardly in the way that they go about it. They will, for example, put on a pride flag onto their corporate logo in Western uh, Twitter accounts, but in Middle Eastern Twitter accounts, it will remain without the pride pride flag. And this is, um, you know, this the problem with wokeness, really. It is absolutely cowardly in not actually challenging uh, countries which for example throw gay people off of buildings or the like i think even about the scandal with uh, qatar where the world cup is going to be held and the way that you know qatar has said things about gay rights which are completely at odds with the fa or fifa what they've said and yet they're still going 
to Qatar for the World Cup. And um, yeah, it's it's disgraceful, really, the way that it's that it's happened. Um, but this is where we are, that there is this constant, you know, underplaying or even undermining of the idea that cultures have different values and that any time it's happened it's just we have to shh, you know we have to 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 hush it up because there's no there's no possibility that we could be wrong that you know different cultures could have different values because in our you know um it made me think actually you know on the podcast a few weeks ago we were looking at living in a fantasy reality and this fantasy reality is one of it's such a strong fantasy reality you know the idea that everybody is the same that every culture is basically the same and we don't we all share the same values more or less and that's the value of the elites um the view of the elites and it's completely wrong um and you know you see in the media every time evidence is presented to the contrary it just gets papered over it just gets whitewashed because they cannot have this view challenged and that's a big problem So it seems to me the heart of the problem is, is there something about British or Western identity where our values are drawn from and our culture is drawn from? And I would say yes, you know, that everything we take for granted in Western civilization comes from Christianity at root. And I know I've mentioned this many times, but for example, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, I think does a very good job of showing that things like equality, for example, come from Christianity at root. And all of the, the values and the, the culture that we take for granted is almost exclusively a product of Christianity, the Christian influence on our culture. Now, if we have lost our appreciation for Christianity, if we in the Western world and we in, in Britain have lost our appreciation for Christianity, then can the values and can the culture remain? And that, I think, is uh, a question which is simply not being answered by our, by our elites and by the mainstream media. But it is a question which I think nonetheless we must ask ourselves. There was an interview with Calvin Robinson on uh, GB News um, just over a week ago with uh, someone called Joseph Robertson from the Orthodox Conservatives um, think tank. And Joseph Robertson was saying, if we don't believe in anything, it will be replaced by people who believe in something. And I think he's absolutely right that if all we have in the Western world are values, that is simply not enough to actually defend ourselves against either Islam or wokeness. Uh, one of those two, and I, I think you know it is quite clear at the moment which one has more power in our in our society. Um, and it'll be interesting to see when they come into conflict, as it, as happens, for example, when the police shut down um, pro, uh, people who had an Allah is gay uh, stand in, uh, in Luton, they got shut down pretty quickly. And that's something which, um, uh, yeah, we, we can see where it's going. 
And I think this is absolutely right, that if we just believe, don't really believe in anything, don't believe in God, don't believe that our values come from anywhere as a Western civilization, then they will be replaced by people who do believe in something. Because secularism, as I've argued before, secularism cannot withstand uh, anyone who actually believes something strongly. That secularism does not have a ground for its beliefs. It, it's cut off its own support by cutting off Christianity. Uh, Tom Holland has argued elsewhere that uh, secularism is a product of Christianity. And um, by cutting off Christianity from secularism, therefore, that you cut off its uh, any intellectual base that it has. And you open the way for people who do believe things to come in. And that's what's happening with uh, with Islam and with wokeness at the moment. So as we come towards the end of this, uh, let's just think about a biblical uh, perspective on this, because uh, as I said before, most of what you hear from church leaders is just simply saying, well, we need to welcome we need to welcome the outsider. We need to. And, you know, there's a yes, welcome's a big thing. You know, everyone is made in the image of God, of course, but there is more to say than that. So let me quote you um, a few um, a few verses from the Old Testament. Um, there are a couple of things that I want to highlight from the Old Testament. The first thing is a call to religious purity. So this is what it says from Joshua 23, verse 7. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. And then Psalm 96 verse 5. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So this is the uh, commands that, that command that God gave to the Old Testament people of Israel, saying that uh, they alone believed in the true God, that the gods of the nations were idols and they were not to worship them and they were not to be corrupted by these idols, that they were to worship God alone. So there was supposed to be a kind of religious purity about the people. Um, so that's one thing that the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, they were to keep themselves pure religiously, devoted themselves only to the Lord, not to be taken aside by the gods of other uh, other nations. And there's also a call to equal treatment in the law in the Old Testament. So again, let me just read a couple of verses. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And then uh, Leviticus 24 verse 22. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord your God. So this notion of equal treatment that uh, throughout the um, Israel's uh, the Old Testament history, then you know, anyone was welcome to come into Israel, but they had to accept the terms of coming in and having the same law, having the same treatment as other people and to be treated as a as a native born but to be you know to, to come on those terms 
you know, which is, you know, we worship God here. We worship the Lord here. And if you want to come and worship among us, then you're very welcome. You know, you're more than welcome. But those are the terms. It must not, um, you know, kind of disturb that religious purity, I suppose. So that was how it was in the Old Testament. But I think those are good principles that um, we can think about and think about how they might apply today. And in particular, I think that we fail on both counts. So if you firstly think about religious purity, how often do you hear uh, bishops and archbishops speaking about the uniqueness of Christ? What you tend to hear from um, bishops and archbishops is, as the Archbishop of Canterbury put out, um, well, this was a couple of years ago, but he does it uh, every year. He puts out on Twitter a message saying, uh, I wish a blessed and joyful Eid al-Fitr to all our mis Muslim friends and neighbours. Eid Mubarak. That's what Justin Welby puts out pretty much every year, um, saying, well, you know, Eid Mubarak to all of our Muslim friends and neighbours. And what I want to say is, where is the call for them to come to Christ? Where is the call for them to repent and come to the Lord? You know, it's just this kind of lazy assumption that Muslims are basically the same as Christians and that we may worship Jesus and yes, they worship Allah, but, you know, we're all in the same boat together. And, you know, I think that there is some merit to, to being um, co-belligerents with Muslims on certain things. You know, the um, schools in, in Birmingham, which was um, standing up against the transgender ideology, for example. I think that was, um, it was largely led by Muslims. It was in a Muslim area and Christians could kind of join forces at that point. So I think, you know, I, I, I do appreciate that as Christians, we do have some commonalities with Muslims. But at the same time, we have to say they worship, they do not worship Jesus. They reject him as Lord. And that's not good. That's not the right thing. And so, you know, we need to meet Muslims with a call to repentance and f to faith in Christ. And yes, I mean, you, there's wisdom about how you actually go about doing that. I wouldn't like to be Archbishop of Canterbury and just to have wisdom in how to outreach. But to, to say that, it just seems crazy to me. It puts me in mind of um, when I was at a, a clergy conference as a, a curate some years ago, I had uh, the, the, the speaker at the conference he said his son was a um, was a vicar somewhere down in the, the south of England, the southwest, I think, and that they a local group of Muslims wanted to build a mosque in the area, and the uh, the planning permission was refused. There wasn't the popular approval for it, and uh, he said that his son's church campaigned for the Muslims to build the mosque because they thought that people were not going for it for racist reasons. Now just think about that. Can you imagine God, what God would say to the Old Testament people of Israel if they had been campaigning to the civil authorities to build a, um, a temple to Baal or something like that? You know, it, it would have been crazy. And for the people, for a church to campaign, to petition the council to build a mosque, it just, that's the level, I think, at which this religious purity is, is absolutely gone out the window. You know that it's, um, a lot of Christians, this is the problem, a lot of Christians just don't recognise the exclusiveness of Christ anymore. And um, that's led to where we are.
Um, the second thing is in terms of equal treatment, um, about you know, living by the same laws and so on, that I think Muslims who come to this country and people of other religions, they, you know, they are, I think, under many of them are under appreciation. This is a Christian country. We, you know, we celebrate Christmas and Easter and so on. Um, but certainly they are not expected to uphold the same laws. They're not treated the same. For example, you think about uh, the protests when the uh, Our Lady of Heaven film was screened up in um, up north somewhere and it was withdrawn. It's, as people made the comment at the time, it's, you know, um, introducing blasphemy laws by the back door. You know, in this country, we do not have blasphemy laws. We have free speech in theory. And people should not be able to shut down the screening of a film because they do not like its ideas or the depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. Think about the Batley uh, school teacher who's still in hiding uh, in fear for his life because he showed a, an image of the Prophet Muhammad. All of that sort of thing um, that, you know, Muslims are just not expected to to abide by Western values and laws. And again, it's this capitulation to of our own you know this collapse of of belief in our own values and particularly when it comes from christianity now i know that this is a pretty bleak um picture and i hope that i've shown that you know that there is a a, a christian way of thinking about immigration which is not you know as kind of insipid as we often get uh, get uh, told from from lots of church leaders but at the same time is there an answer and this is where I think um, Catherine Burblesing has got a lot of good things to say. And I, I really respect what she has to say. She's not a Christian, but I think that she is onto something. She did an interview um, a couple of weeks ago, two or three weeks ago with John Anderson. And it's a really good interview. But she was saying, and, and she said this before, at her school at Michaela, she said, it doesn't matter whether you are... Um, you know, what colour you are, where you're from ethnically, no matter what you are, you are British if you're there. And, you know, she says you're taught to, to sing the national anthem, you know, uh, you are, um, you know, taught about the history of, of Britain, you know, you're just British if you're there. And I thought that's such a lovely picture of the way that I think things should be, rather than trying to to say you know people are multicultural and you know you can just be your own culture if you come here and we're just a melting pot of everything i'd i'd love it if actually we could you know schools and other organizations could just be like this and say no if you come here you want to be british and you accept our values you know you accept the rule of law and but particularly when it comes to christianity you know you accept even if you're not christian yourself you accept that that is where our values come from and that you know that's what we are going to live out in this country. I think what kind of difference could that make to, for example, the violence which has happened in, in Leicester if people actually realise, you know, well, this is, you know, we will not tolerate this because we are, you know, coming from a Christian perspective and we believe in, in tolerance, we believe in this is what we stand for rather than being told you can just carry on with your own squabbles um, and do things in the way that you would do them in India or in other places. We don't do that kind of thing here. And it's because of our Christian identity, our Christian values. And I've often said this to people, and I'll finish with this, which is if you want to take a stand against multiculturalism 
and against some of the problems which uh, which come from it, the very best thing you can do is to get to church, to get on your knees, pray, read the Bible, and just take no um, no shame in your Christian identity. You know, because that is what we are as a country. That's what we have been historically. And I believe we can be again if we stand firm for it and if we stand up and say, no, we want to be a Christian uh, country and we want to take our stand on the Bible. So, yeah, that's that's what I have to say about about that. I think there's a huge amount more I could have said. And I do apologize for skimming over some things. And I appreciate there are probably uh, many more things that, that, that could and should have been said or maybe said with more nuance and so on. Do let me know if there are other things that you'd like to add. Uh, you can uh, telegram me, you can uh, email me sacredmusingspod at gmail.com um, or leave just leave a comment on YouTube and uh, I do look at those too. But uh, anyway, um, I think that's probably long enough for the moment. It's gone on quite a long time. I do apologise for that. So let's move on and finish with thinking uh, for, about a biblical reflection. We're going to look at Psalm 94 today. So let's finish today by looking at Psalm 94 with a reflection. And um, I read this the other day and I think it's actually, um, it really speaks into the current situation. It's a sort of a moderately length um, Psalm, 23 verses, but I'm going to read all of it out and then I will, um, I'll just share a few thoughts about it. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Take notice, you senseless ones among the people. You fools, when will you become wise? Does he who fashioned the ear not hear? Does he who formed the eye not see? Does he who disciplines nations not punish? Does he who teaches mankind lack knowledge? The Lord knows all human plans. He knows that they are futile. Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. You grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not reject his people, he will never forsake his inheritance. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? Unless the Lord had given me help, I would soon have dwelt in the silence of death. When I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Can a corrupt throne be allied with you, a throne that brings on misery by its decrees? The wicked band together against the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my fortress and my God the rock in whom I take refuge. He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Okay, that's uh, Psalm 94, and I think there's a lot there that we could say, but there's just a couple of things that I wanted to mention. 
Um, the first thing is thinking about how God is a God of justice and a God of of vengeance. And he sees the injustice on the earth and cares about it. So often, I think we forget that and forget that God cares about justice more than we do. When we see terrible things happening around the world, we think, oh, God is letting that go on. He doesn't care. But that is actually not the case. And as this psalm says, you know, it's just crying out to God, appealing to this this sense of justice saying you know how long will the wicked be jubilant how long were they able to be to be going around pouring out arrogant words they're just full of boasting they crush your people and they say the lord does not see you know god lets them get away with it and i think we we should have that that feeling of justice we should be angered when we see injustice in the world and there's so much of it at the moment you know we should be angered when we see elites the rich and the powerful taking advantage of the poor um and um and yes that is that's a terrible thing and that's a real injustice and we should be up in arms about it but it goes on to say uh, blessed is the one you discipline uh, you grant them relief from days of trouble till a pit is dug for the wicked the lord will not reject his people and um, and a judgment will again be founded on righteousness and i think that is a calling for us that's a calling for us that we need to rather than getting caught up in the injustice you know we as the ones who um, belong to the lord um, we need to uh, to look to his law we need to look to what is right the right way to live we need to stand firm for that and we need to have the courage to do what is good and what is right. Um, that's the first thing that we need to do, just to keep trusting God, to doing what is good and right. But also, we need to stand against the wickedness. As it says, verse 16, Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who will take a stand for me against evildoers? That we need to take a stand. I was watching um, a, a little clip from Zuby. Um, I like Zuby. Um, he's often got some good things to say. But he um, he was saying that the reason we've got into this mess is because of a lack of courage. That people, although they may privately agree with, um, you know, that there are only two sexes, um, that they won't stand against the transgender, kind of the way that transgender go against people like J.K. Rowling, go after people like, um, like her. And, um, you know... It, all it takes is for people to be courageous and standing up for justice, standing up for the truth. And that's what we need to do. And that's what I believe as Christians we are called to do, to actually stand up for justice and truth and to be bold and courageous in the way that we do that. And we know that um, God will help us, as the psalmist uh, goes on to say, um, that he is the one who, uh, who supports us and upholds us. So we can afford to be bold. We can afford to be courageous in standing up against injustice. And, um, you know, it says, God is my fortress, my God, the rock in whom I take refuge. You know, we trust him at the end of the day to bring about justice. But we must, in the meantime, you know, do what is right. Do what is right and just and fair in our own lives as far as we are able to. And uh, trust that God will provide. And we must stand up and speak out against uh, the things where we see injustice happening in the world. And particularly where the world itself is blind to its injustices. 
I think that's where we need to speak out the most. You know, it's it's all very well to speak about um, uh, justice of a certain kind. The world kind of applauds speaking about certain kinds of justice, but it's blind to many others. And and I think that's where, as Christians, we have a role to speak. So I hope that that's an encouragement to you. Do have a read of Psalm 94, um, perhaps uh, you know later, uh, just yourself, as a, um, it encouraged me as I read, and I hope it's an encouragement to you too. So let's finish with a prayer and ask that God would help us uh, with all of the things that we've been talking about today and uh, pray for God's blessing. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm and we pray that um, as we see injustice happening around the world, that you would help us to trust you and, and call out to you for justice. And we pray that you would help us in our own lives to do what is just and righteous and to commit ourselves to your ways and to um, to stand up and uh, to be courageous in taking a stand against the injustice that we see. And we pray, Lord, as we were thinking about with uh, migration and with culture, we just uh, pray, Heavenly Father, that um, Western civilization, that our, our own country in, in Great Britain would um, just look to Christianity, look to you once again as uh, the source of everything good and that you would cause us, Lord, to to turn back to you and that our ways would be built once more on your ways and that you would bring real healing to our land and bring us together as a people. Um, we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, bring us together in the right ways and heal our divisions. And we pray all of these things, uh, trusting in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much, everyone, for joining me today. Um, don't forget that uh, to leave a, a rating review if you're on the audio podcast, the like, subscribe if you're on YouTube, and there is a buy me a coffee link as well if you'd like to support me in that way too. I really do appreciate all of those things. And if you'd like to get in touch, then um, you can do that too. And the links are all down below. So yeah, thanks so much for joining me today, everyone. God bless, and I'll see you again soon.